This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. On this podcast, as you know, we view the news through the lens of literature, and to that end, we've looked at the way a number of literary figures and forms apply to today's politics. We've talked about henchmen in literature and in the trumpet orbit. We've discussed the way crime fiction shapes Western politics and thought. We've talked about the way that Borges' story, The Library of Babel, prefigures the Panopticon data collection of social media organizations like Meta. We did do that. That was a good episode, too. We'll, we'll put links like, to all like those. like the third episode. I know. Maybe that like was the second or third. That's deep cut there. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we'll put links to those episodes in case people want to listen to them in the show notes for this week's show. But this week, we're going to discuss a literary form that seems to have a lot of relevance to today's politics, particularly life in the GOP-controlled House of Representatives. Can you guess at the form, Sugi? Is it the Dear John letter? (laughs) I wish. No. Uh, we could do an episode about that as well, though. The form that we are going to talk about today is in reference to our pals Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, Lauren Boebert, Mike Johnson. Does this list have an end? You seem to be having a problem getting to the end. You were supposed to interrupt me sooner, so it seemed like there was really a problem. <laughs> There's a large <laughs> space there. You messed it up. That's farcical. And that's what we're talking about is farce, Right. These people are ridiculous and dangerous, and they seem to fit perfectly into the literary tradition of farce, which has a very long history. And we're going to look at what that tradition can tell us about these total boobs who seem to be running the house. And a lot of other things, if you ask me. And to join us in this discussion, we are pleased to welcome the novelist Timothy Shoffert. Timothy Shoffert is the author of six novels, most recently The Perfume Thief, which came out from Doubleday in August 21. His other books include The Swan Gondola, The Coffins of Little Hope, Devils in the Sugar Shop, The Singing and Dancing Daughters of God, and The Phantom Limbs of the Rollo Sisters. That is like a masterclass in good titles. Um, He has served as editor of two books from University of Nebraska Press, You Will Never See Any God, Stories by Irvin Krauss, and More in Time, a tribute to Ted Kuzer, with Jessica Pulley and Marco Abel. His books have been selected as an Indie Next pick and for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers program and recommended as a New York Times editor's choice. The Swan Gondola was an Oprah.com book of the week, and his new novel, The Titanic Survivors Book Club, will be out next spring. Timothy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Um, uh, As an enthusiastic reader of your work, I would say that you usually have some form of comedy, dark and or light, in your novels, and you allow play, irony, absurdity, even satire 
For instance, your 2011 novel, The Coffins of Little Hope, is an affectionately satirical take on the world of young adult publishing and life in Nebraska. Um, so it's funny and beautiful and moving, but at least in my opinion, it's not farce. What does it mean for a work of fiction or a play or a movie to be farce? Well, I think I might be tempted to put my work in the category of farce, but um, but the risk of Maybe doing I'm that wrong. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think that the um, our concept of farce is that it's it's broad, that it's slapstick, that it's kind of belly laughs, and that the the targets are quite apparent. Uh, and I, but I think historically, you know, if you think of like a Jean Cocteau play in the middle twentieth century. You know that there's there's subtlety, and I think even uh, directors and directing actors will indicate that when playing farce, you should play it straight. You know that there's an element of of subtlety and and grace, and that the the situations need to present themselves as as absurd. So so yeah, I think I think that there's. I mean, I'm definitely. Um, skirting around with irony and and comedy but also romance and and tragedy and and but I I do mean for it to land I suppose with some level of humor and and at times absurdism I guess one of the things that you said there that chimed for me was that it's very it's very important that the characters in a farce who are acting absurdly do not know that they are in a farce <laughs> And believe that they are acting completely rationally. I think that applies to the politicians that we'll be discussing today as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like a total lack of self-awareness. So when I think of farce, I think of the French and the term itself is a derived from the French word for stuffing. And as Wikipedia tells me is used to refer to the improvisations of actors during medieval religious dramas. Um, and Merriam-Webster defines farce as, and I'm quoting here, a light dramatic composition marked by broadly satirical comedy and improbable plot. And also, uh, quote, an empty or patently ridiculous act, proceeding or situation. Why does this describe the political circus in which we live? Anyway, so what recent GOP house exploits fit these definitions? This is what's known as a softball question, Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, well, I, I think it might be worthwhile to think about the distinction between um, uh, farcical <laughs> and farce and whether or not these kinds, I mean, I, I guess there's a, it, it does often seem like there's a highly performative aspect to um, these shenanigans and that they are, um, that they do mean to to play to the cheap seats to a certain degree, uh, even as they're also playing to their underwriters. And so, but I don't know, but but I don't think they intend for us to see it as farce. I mean, it would be very interesting if at some point somebody just uh, outed themselves as being in on the joke to a certain degree or like, or trying to, um, uh, to satirize politics and it actually is a performance. Um, but, uh, but I think that so much of it is just really, I, I think, yeah, they're playing to to their constituents. I keep thinking back to, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there's early in Marjorie Taylor Greene's career before she was a politician, she followed, uh, is it, was it Timothy Hogue? One of the, um, a victim uh, in the, from the Parkland shooting who became himself political, right? And she followed him around the Capitol filming him and commenting on it. And it seemed 
so outrageously cruel thing for an adult to do that it seemed like farce, but also was, of course, in and of itself, a cruel thing to do. Um, and that, that, and she never, she never once considered that perhaps this would be inappropriate, you know, and that, that to me sort of is what we're talking about here. I mean, farce doesn't have to be, farcical characters don't have to be funny. They're often quite nasty. They're just nasty in a way that we find funny. Yeah, I think I think that kid's name is maybe I think it's David Hogue that you're thinking of. David um, Hogue. That's right. I'm sorry, I got that um, wrong. Yeah, maybe yeah, I think he and his sister actually um I'm not sure if she ended up having run-ins with MTG. Um but yeah, like uh like she's totally yeah, again, a total lack of self-awareness which seems to kind of play into this. And I'm also a little bit reminded by your comment of I feel like this was way back when I was in graduate school. I was briefly in billionaires for bush which was this like group where you would like i like i think i put on my high school prom dress and like a string of fake pearls and got like a plastic champagne flute and kind of like gussied myself up a little and like stood outside um the republican convention like waving like greeting people who were coming in with great enthusiasm um i don't know this is all making me kind of wish that like maybe we should be infiltrating the republican party actually and 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 t- taking it that way, um, seeing if there's like a way to way to subvert it from the inside, which might be certainly sounds more fun than anything we're doing now. <laughs> Timothy, do you have any favorite uh, farcical uh, GOP characters that you like to follow or do you try to ignore <laughs> them entirely? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, is that like you really can't go into Twitter or the, the, the service formerly known as Twitter without some being assaulted by all kinds of, of, of amateur Marjorie Taylor Greens, you know, people who recognize the success that they've had through these quips and through this coldness and through just like general absurdity and, and how often a, a tweet can then go viral as a result of its outlandishness. And so you have, so there's a whole, I, I think there's a lot of people auditioning for that kind of role. And so <laughs> it, any on any given day, you read something and you think, well, this has this has to be a joke. I mean, this has to be a performance and and uh, we're to recognize it as such. But sometimes it's it's difficult to really discern that. But I th- I think that you'd have to be completely mad in some of these instances not to realize that that you, you're just being provocative, you know, that this is a kind of, um, uh, that you're, you're in competition for all these other uh, voices that would also be outlandish. And, um, and so, yeah, so I think that it's, so I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily have anybody that I, I particularly follow with, um, with glee. <laughs> and I, 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 my preference is to shut it all out. But, um, uh, but my, my husband, it keeps me informed every now and again. Did you you hear what she said this time? It's like, well, no, I'd rather not know. I did look up the Nebraska, I mean, since you live in Nebraska, the Nebraska State House representatives, of which there are only three, which is, I thought there would be more, but I guess there's not that many people in your state. And, uh, sorry. Um, But uh, (laughs) none of them really stood out to me as provocateurs of the type that we're talking about, unless I'm missing something. No, and they tend to be, I think, uh, of a... Uh, an old school, more practical based conservatism. Um, so it's, and I, but I mean, I, I don't know, but we also currently have a governor that um, 
insists that he was chosen by God. <laughs> and so there's, um, I, I mean, all of this is just so, I mean, sometimes the thing about, uh, about reading the news is that it feels like it's already history, you know, that you feel like you are reading something that is an historian or a scholar is kind of putting forth, that, that, that we're, we're examining an era just because it is also feels so pre-interpreted to a certain degree, and because it all has, you know, um, has precedent, too, in, in world history. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Well, we do have a quote in here uh, that we have to mention from Marx about history repeating, you know, come, happening first as tragedy and then later on as farce. We'll get to that part in a little bit. But speaking of new style uh, representatives, there's Matt Gates um, in 2021 who was accused of sex trafficking and having sex with a minor, uh, which I think he was acquitted of, although I don't know exactly how convincingly. Uh, and Here's just a t I looked at his Wikipedia page, which reads like some sort of play by Moliere. Um, but here's a tiny quote from it. Um, Gates was reportedly joined by marijuana entrepreneur and hand surgeon Jason Pirozzolo, who allegedly paid trip accommodations, traveling expenses, and escort services. Investigators were reportedly exploring whether the escorts were sexually trafficked for Gates and whether Gates accepted paid escorts in exchange for political access or legislative favors for Pirozzolo, who at the time chaired the board of the Medical Marijuana Physicians <laughs> Association. What is going on? And then, so that just seems so patently, just like, this is a ridiculous person. And yet, you know, this year, he managed to vote out the Speaker of the House and get an ally, Mike Johnson, to, to be in charge. So how does, how does a ridiculous person like that get power in this way? Well, and, I, and some of that was by design. You know, they, they made sure that there, it would only take one vote to knock someone out. And so, it's, so there's a, um, a kind of over arching commitment to dismantling the government that I think is uh, is core to their being to a certain degree. And so it is, so perhaps that's part of the, the mission and the philosophy is this, this circus act that just tumbles forward and, and that, you know, and, and there's, I mean, Donald Trump is a TV personality. And so there's a kind, and he, and he brought that reality show sensibility <laughs> to the White House and people have eaten it up, you know? And so there's a certain um, delight, I think, that people, I mean, that even the, the media gets, um, they, they, they take a hit when um, these figures aren't headlining, you know, when they're not doing something outrageous. You know, they really want people to keep returning to their, uh, to the, this, font of information that does often seem like um, a, a spotlight on on these uh, ridiculous antics. So it seems like hypocrisy is maybe playing a significant role here. The main character in Moliere's famous farce, Tartuffe, manages to manipulate the people around him because they believe that he's pious and devout. And in fact, he's venal and greedy and very interested in sex. And that made me think, ta-da, of, of Lauren Bobert, our our favorite uh, headliner, a person <laughs> who spends a lot of time. Bobert. I, 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 I feel like when you're talking about Moliere. Is that the French Moliere, pronunciation? <laughs> yes. I'm leaning, right, into, I'm leaning into. I'm sticking with uh, it. 
<laughs> yes. Here's a person who spends, I mean, like, right. I, Laurent I was Bobert. To, yes. And this is how I think about her. <laughs> but because she just seems like she's, I don't know, like a version of like Falstaff or something. I don't know. Like, um, I was talking to my husband the other day about her, right. She was, she was caught in like a public groping incident and I couldn't keep her straight from Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I basically retold my husband this story, except for I made it Marjorie Taylor Greene. And he was like, Sugi, that was Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I was like, I cannot tell these people apart at this point. Um, they're not even like, um, like they're cartoonish, but to me, they're starting to lose their distinctiveness. So here is a person who spends a lot of time piously talking about the dangers of sex. Um, Lauren Boebert or Lauren Bobert, as I prefer <laughs> to call her, like Tarjay, especially any kind of sex she and her fellow conservatives define as abnormal. And and then, yeah, at a recent performance of the musical Beetlejuice in Denver, the story that I told my husband starring erroneously Marjorie Taylor Greene, she was caught on camera vaping and being groped by and reciprocally groping her date. Does this qualify as farce? Um. I- Again, I think it's kind of I think it's farcical, but I, I but she also then I, I don't I, I don't know that I've followed it too closely, but I feel like she recanted to a certain degree or apologized or there there were some efforts to I mean she she didn't I think maybe initially she kind of embraced the controversy but then started getting nervous or something. So it's it's that's another thing that's hard to keep track of is there these various characters' sense of of consequence and um, and and whether there's any real concern about their actions, and so I think that that's um, so. It's it, so. I, although it'd be fun to think that she went into that evening wanting to make news and to comment on her own notoriety and to to celebrate her outrageousness, but uh, but I also think that she's just out of control. So part of this is that in farce the character never apologizes, right? They never express remorse. They are always themselves, right? And so the fact that she felt bad about it makes her, reduces her farce meter there, I guess. <laughs> Is that what you're I saying? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, um, uh, the, I don't know how much is an emotional response to the world and how much is an intellectual response and how much is, how much of this, these controversies that they stir up is, um, uh, by design and how and plus there's so much of it like I, I mentioned you know Twitter and how like you know how cheap those tweets are basically I mean it doesn't cost anything to go in and stir things up and you don't have to be, be terribly articulate you don't have to uh, go into great detail and somehow those things can actually catch the moment you know can actually assert themselves into the cultural conversation so I think that it's 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 challenging, I think, for these people to really know um, exactly what's gonna um, what's gonna play with their constituents or with or with the celebrity that they're seeking. I can think of one other hypocritical, like an example of hypocrisy playing a role in this political farce, which was on uh, January sixth or on or about, like Josh Hawley, who is our senator from Missouri, uh, did that raised fist to the to the protesters, right? And then later, during the actual storming of the Capitol, there was this footage of him like hurrying away, you know, like not tough at all, running from them, right? Which he never admitted to or ever commented on, right? But there was this, 
that that to me is a is a situation of farce where you have this person who's wanting to present this very tough I'm you know and then like you see them in the back corridors running from everything right that's what a farcical character would do so if we were moving on to a more uh recent examples of farce I, I find myself frequently thinking of the movie airplane these days in particular I feel kind of like that air traffic controller who's trying to guide the plane back to the ground and every time we see him he's engaging in some new bad habit you know looks like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking he says and then later looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue is it possible that farce is also a way of helping us cope with people like Lauren Boebert and Matt Getz? Um, or is the election of a far-right speaker of the House like Mike Johnson? Well, I do think there's a level of criticism, certainly. So, I, yeah, it makes sense that it's, it's a coping mechanism, but also a way to actually try to uh, make a statement and to, uh, to call attention to these absurdities and to almost try to develop or, or establish a moral center where you can say, all right, this, these things that I'm ridiculing are, you know, they're, they're far removed from my, my point of view. And so I think there is, it, it, I think farce can then become a kind of political act in that regard. And in that instance, you know, they, there is a sense of, of that, that you mean to be funny, that you are intending to, to reach your audience through humor and through pointing out the, 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 the outlandishness of it all. And so I think, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I was also thinking of, in this conversation of, um, in 1977, Anita Bryant took a, fa- a pie to the face. So there was a, a gay activist, I think his name was Tom Higgins, and he, um, and she was, and Anita Bryant was this uh, beauty pageant runner-up, and she, chilled for orange juice and was Miss Wholesome and and she was also uh, anti-gay and it was on a a conservative rampage across the country and he even had intentions of establishing uh, Anita Gay centers for the rehabilitation of gay people and so um, Tom Higgins uh, shows up with with a pie and he throws it in her face during a press conference and and if you watch the video, she almost immediately responds with a quip. She's like, well, at least it's a fruit pie because it was banana cream pie. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's pretty sharp that she <laughs> was uh, had the presence of mind to leap in in such a way. But then but then somebody suggests, oh, we should we should pray for him, you know, for and and so they do. So they 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 have a prayer and um, and she starts weeping during the prayer. And I felt I feel like to a certain degree that whole moment kind of speaks to the conversation that we're having, you know, that here you have, there's this in, in, intentional, that, that, you know, there's this effort to uh, disrupt her rhetoric. And, um, and she performs in kind by uh, relying on a kind of gay joke. And then, but then, you know, the, whether the tears were real or not, she nonetheless gave into emotion and and I have to think that there's something about the, the 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 weeping during her prayer that was perhaps more satisfying to the pie thrower than um, than her joke that is a really good example <laughs> it's like that's like I'd forgotten about her but she was like an early prototype of the Laurent Bobert and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back.
I'm really curious about what you think of Borat. Um, well, I, <laughs> I have to tell you, I've never seen it. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I, I, I really kind of, um, and maybe this is a commentary on farce too, I, I get extremely uncomfortable watching these kinds of pranks in which there's one person who knows it, it's a prank and another person is being pranked. Like I candid camera that I grew up with when I was a kid, like the whole, <laughs> the whole concept of deception and then like capturing this moment of the person being deceived, even though that's, I write about deception. I mean, every, all of my books are about deception. And so um, I, I don't know that I fully realized that until, uh, till most recently, but there's, um, but bottom line, I, I, I feel like if, and maybe this is why I keep harping on this subject of whether it's farce, if, if it can be farce, if the person doesn't intend for it to be farce, you know, there's something about that intention that, um, that makes the difference for me. And whether it's a, um, um, you know, whether it's, it's playing as comedy or whether it's playing as tragedy, you know. I'm just wondering about, um, right, the slippery line here. Also, we mentioned reality television before and, and Trump. And I, I guess in your comments are also making me think about like reality television situations kind of maybe before or adjacent to Trump, like punked or jackass, which in some ways I think of like forerunners of Borat. And I basically feel the same way as you about Borat. Like I would rather not have seen it. And I am <laughs> related to someone who enjoys the kind of comedy that makes people extremely uncomfortable um, and he basically like made me go and see it. And like, I found it, I found it like almost impossible to watch, which was interesting because I'm like, I think essentially politically aligned with Borat. Like I basically agree with right. the, like everything that's being mocked. And yet somehow I can hardly stand to watch it. Um, but it's plainly farce. Um, but, but even like I, the person who should be laughing with, um, like I don't, I don't know. It's interesting because sometimes it actually sparks in me a sympathy that right. I don't expect or even want to feel. Um, and which is surprising to me because I think like one of the curious things about so many of the people that we're talking about is like essentially like if you try to write Matt Gates's interiority or like Lauren Boebert's interiority or like Mike Johnson's interiority, for me, it's like a it's like a creepy blankness. Like, I don't think I could access it. Anyway, I'm curious about... I wanted about... to check with Timothy about, like, I want to go back to this. You said that... What is the distinction that you said just a little minute ago that... Um, the intention. Just a minute ago. Yeah, the intention. Is it that it's farce if the person doesn't know that they're being farcical or if they do know that they're being... Like, in other words, <laughs> the actor who plays Borat knows what he's doing, right? So that's not farce? Is that what no, you're no, saying? No. The opposite. So I, I feel oh, okay. like uh, it, in, in Barat, it, it clearly is a case of it's intentional. He, he means to, um, to, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a kind of construct there or, or a vision that is, that hinges on comedy and, and disruption and, uh, and presenting himself of presenting himself and others for ridicule and it, it, with an ultimate goal of of communicating something about society or or human nature or something, uh, whereas I think the I think the politicians really intend to be. Yeah, I, I think they want to be thought of as genuine. You know, I think that uh, that there is still this sense that if you're in politics, your your success will hinge somewhat on convincing people that you're right. And so um, 
so I, I, well, and I, just to go back to the pie throwing for a second too. Uh, so uh, another thing about um, Trump is that he it, it came out in a deposition that Michael Cohen said, well, Trump was was like mortally afraid of of taking a pie in the face. That he would he instructed social you know, his secret service to attack anybody who seems to have a pie as a weapon, or I think even like tomatoes and fruit. Like, it, so there was just this, and, and I think that speaks somewhat to, um, to, to the, what, what is someone who creates farce, a farceur of the, 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 the master of farce, the person who's uh, putting the farce together. I think to a certain degree, there, there perhaps is an intention to, or a hope that you get through to the villain, you know, to the person you're making fun of, to the the subject of your ridicule, that somehow, um, and I, I think this is a, a, a this is a case of where, I mean, I would think that these politicians, these kind of larger than life politicians, would have to have a very thick skin, but oftentimes they're very thin skinned, and so I think this that Trump's aversion to pies <laughs> speaks a little bit to that <laughs> sense of, of his ego and his arrogance and how ultimately there are any number of instances where he's communicated a certain kind of frailty in terms of his, the, his public's perception, even as he mocks his public, you know? Well, I think that these people want to be taken seriously like real politicians, but they are imitating the way that real politicians are taken seriously because they themselves are not serious internally. Like they don't have like serious ideas. They have, you know, things they heard on the Internet, you know, that, that are that are positions they are not deeply held positions. Anyway, I, and, but there's a danger to that. And I also think that farce has in the past and at times been used as a literary form to also as a warning Um you know, I, I'm going to bring in Ionesco's play Rhinoceros, which may is kind of considered absurdist, but also has elements of farce in it. And in this play, a rhinoceros suddenly appears in a, in a town square and the characters debate over whether or not it's even possible for a rhinoceros to be in France. It couldn't happen here, you know, but then the townspeople begin to change into rhinoceroses or rhinoceri, however, the, whatever the plural of that word is. And maybe technically this, you know, plays categorizes it absurdist, but the element there's an element of farce in, in the way that the characters interact with each other and the weirdness of the things that are going on and everyone taking their their positions very seriously. And I also feel like it's a warning because that that play is a warning about you know fascism, right? And I feel like you know it's also saying like yes, this behavior or turning into a rhinoceros might be weird or funny or absurd, but that absurdity is becoming accepted now as the norm. That's what the play is sort of saying, like shows you the way that something that seems crazy can become what everyone is doing. And suddenly there's only one guy left who doesn't want to be a rhinoceros, right? And I feel like that is the danger of these characters running sort of unchecked through our politics, right? That their, their behavior is becoming normalized. What do you think about that idea? Well, and certainly when you look at historical magazines and cartoons and the role of farce and satire and parody in politics, you know, there's, there, the cartoonists are always quick to recognize insincerity and abuse and, and danger and terror. And the approach that they take is to, um, to in a sense, to kind of simplify it to a cartoonishness that suggests the complexities that are inherent in these combative political stances. And so I, I'm kind of dancing around Hitler, but, you know, that that was certainly, um, you know, he, he was widely ridiculed. He was thought he was 
you know, the, the, the magazines, the critics, the, the, um, the people who are shaping culture and social conversation recognized him as uh, just over the top and laughable. And of course, he was also famously thin skinned and um, which was always that this, the, the analysts suggest that that's how he became so horrible, you know? And so I think that it's, it, 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 there is definitely um, an inclination to alert and that one way to get people's attention is to ask them to reframe the debate to a certain degree. And so, you know, the, 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 this, the essay we're all assigned when we're in high school or college, the, the uh, you know, a modest proposal about the um, dealing with famine by devouring the children, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's, ultimately doesn't seem it's believable to a certain extent you know I guess there's <laughs> also that aspect of farce is when you present it in a way that looks like the kind of argument that somebody might actually make um that that penetrates okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back So your new novel, The Titanic Survivors Book Club, is coming out next April. Uh, congratulations, first of all. And second, we wondered if you could read us a preview, especially one that has an element of farce. Sure. Yeah. And so I'm just going to read from the very beginning, which I think perhaps sets some of the tone. Um, and I would argue that it's probably a tone similar to my other books. You know, as Whitney pointed out, you know, I do use comedy and absurdism to a certain degree and irony, but also, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's also a romance and, and a tragedy. So, but this is from chapter one of uh, the Titanic Survivors Book Club. Uh, I spotted my name again and again on the lists of the dead. Even as the weeks went by and their ports got fixed, my name didn't budge. Lists of those who perished and of those who didn't began to be published only days after the wreck. And for days after that, as facts shifted and name might slip from one list to the other, people who lived died, people who died lived. But my death stuck to me. I didn't write anybody about it. I didn't ask for any correction. I only waited. In dark moments, I wondered, what if they're right? It became a nightly habit at a corner pub. I'd take my gin with a blast of siphon seltzer, the liveliest cocktail I could think of. Then I'd eyeball the evening edition to take my pulse. Then one night, a few weeks in, my name was nowhere. I kept checking the reports for days after to see if I'd someday show up on the lists of survivors, but I never did. I simply simply ceased to be. Nonetheless, I know for as long as my name lingered in the newspapers around the world, people noticed me. Though I'm unknown far and wide, my name is as famous as it is uncommon. And I know exactly what they thought when they saw it. They maybe even muttered it, tried it out on their tongues, performed it. Alas, poor Yorick. My dad fancied himself a Shakespearean actor, though he was merely a vaudevillian uh, in the middle of America when he named me. My father cared only for his characters. But Yorick wasn't even that. He was only a prop, a skull for Hamlet to hold. Alas, poor Yorick, Hamlet says in the boneyard, gazing into the empty eye sockets of a dead clown. You'll live forever on the stage, my father told me once when I was a little boy, when I complained about the name he gave me. You'll donate your skeleton to the theater. Every time they do Hamlet forever after, they'll hold your head up high in the limelight. 
Over a year after I was pronounced dead, I received an invitation to the Titanic survivor, it said, with only a time and a place and nothing else. The invitation arrived as a message in a bottle, and the message had been folded into a little paper boat, like those boats that boys and girls fold from newspaper and send drifting in a fountain. I could tell from the odd nature of the note that this was nothing at all official. I wasn't being summoned to an insurance office or called to testify. I propped open the bookshop's front door with a fat medical atlas on human anatomy, and there the bottle was, sitting upright in the doorway. I heard it before I saw it, a breeze whistling across the bottle's lip. My shop was full of novels that started this way, stories of unrequited love, lies, revenge, mistaken identity, secrets and confessions and regrets revealed in letters sent, intercepted, purloined, lost, burnt. Or maybe I was already reading into that message before I could see a word of it. I wanted to be rescued by that paper boat. I'd bought my shop in a whim, practically, with an inheritance I would have been better off putting in a bank, and in the months I'd owned the shop, I'd managed to add far more books to its shelves than I'd sold. Whenever it was quiet, which was most of the time, I swore I could hear the weevils working their jaws, devouring the books from the inside out, eating my every word. After retrieving the bottle, I went to the back of my shop to my workbench, built from the shell of an old upright piano. Beneath the lid where the hammers and pins had been, I kept my tools and supplies. I'd installed a narrow tabletop over the keys of chipped ivory. I sat on the piano bench, my back to the shop. I went fishing for the message through the bottle's neck with an awl I used for repairing broken spines, but I gave that up quick, and I wrapped the bottle in a square of flocked book cloth and struck it with a mallet. When I opened, the deep blue velvet of midnight sea lay before me, the boat tossed across the glistening waves of shattered glass. I tugged at the boat's sails to unfold the note. Either someone had made a mistake in inviting me, or they'd peeked inside my soul, because I had survived the Titanic, despite having had both feet on dry land when the ship sank. And that survival had changed the entire direction of my life. By not boarding the ship as planned, I'd put a twist in my own plot. You yourself are a Titanic survivor, you might say, because you didn't board either. You'll say that we're all survivors of tragedy, if you look at it the way that I look at it. And there's a truth to that, I suppose. When you hear of a neighbor who stumbled on the stairs to her demise, you eye your own staircase with suspicion. Every step up is a death averted. A train goes off its rails. A girl gets poisoned by a bad oyster. A thug cuts a man's throat in a dark alley. In every instance, it isn't you. You live another day. Your daily paper is full of reports of your own survival. And I'll end there. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. Um, I love the conceit of naming this character Yorick. Um, I wondered if that was an act purely of your imagination or if there was, in fact, someone on the list of the dead from the Titanic who was named that. No, I, to my knowledge, there's no um, uh, Titanic passenger named Yorick. I think I may have gotten it from uh, Edward Gorey's uh, The Gashley Crumb Tinies, which is an uh, what Gore used to call an ABCDarium. Uh, and so, uh, and Y is for Yorick, whose head was bashed in. And so that each, each letter depicts um, the grisly demise of some child or another. And so I, th I think, it, it, I don't always, I don't know about you, but I, I don't always know the character's name when I start writing the book and certainly not when I start conceiving it. But in this particular instance, I did, feel the need to know pretty early on before I even started in with the voice of of who this character was. And so I think it might have just been 
a glance at the Gashly Crumtinies that made me think it needed to be York. But once I had the name, then I also felt like that suggested so much about his character. I love the Gashly Crumtinies. Um, so I want to go back to that line um, from Marx that Whitney mentioned before, that history repeats itself, quote, uh, the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. Is that part of what makes Yorick like funny and and it comes from a very serious scene in a tragic play and here is it here it is being repurposed as farce the name is kind of right where we're laughing because it's over serious kind of because it's ridiculous yeah and then it and it ends up kind of plaguing him in his life too so i and and it also speaks to his own sense of his relationship with his destiny to a certain degree and i i think that um I mean, the, the Titanic, you know, it's it's one of those disasters that's also perhaps the most famous metaphor for disaster, too, you know, that that it's uh, or bad luck or fate. And so that's what these characters. So he ends up getting together with these other characters, these other people who also had tickets to the Titanic and didn't board. And so it, 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 they're grappling with this question of um does that mean that I'm extremely lucky and that I didn't board or am I extremely unlucky in that I had a ticket to begin with? And so it's this, they're, they're trying to come to terms with fate to a certain degree and determining um, their own relationship to uh, coincidence and serendipity and synchronicity. And um, they become kind of preoccupied with it. But, but there is there is there there was a phenomenon almost immediately after the Titanic sank of people claiming to have had tickets and having, you know, at the last chance, you know, sold them or given them to somebody else. So there's, uh, I, I, and I already I've seen it when I've talked about it to, to groups of people like book clubs and such, there'll be somebody in the book club who's like, well, yes, that was my great aunt Agnes. She had a ticket. To, so I think there are these, in these families, there are these, these legends of, um, that really speaks to that sense of, of, of uh, wanting to communicate luck and fate and 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 a relationship to historical disaster. I mean, in fact, there's probably really only 50 documented cases of people who actually had tickets but didn't board. But um, but even at the time, there was I think a newspaper article that said if if all the people who claimed to have had tickets actually did board the ship, it would have sunk in the harbor. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, we encourage you to go out and pick up Timothy's books. His most recent novel is The Perfume Thief, and his new novel, The Titanic Survivors Book Club, which we were just been discussing, will be out next spring. Thank you so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net. 
where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!